Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can come together this morning and sing your praises, hear your word, and receive your sacrament. Lord, as we do so this morning, we pray that you would speak a new, refreshing truth into our lives that would meet everyone's need here this morning. And as we look at Jacob once again and see the mess of his life and how you transformed it, may we be transformed people as well. Take our minds now, think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to yours and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in this series in Genesis throughout the first week of the summertime, and we've arrived at this section in Jacob's life where he's running for his life from Esau. He stole the blessing. He's lived into his name. Remember, his name means grabber, wrestler, deceiver, schemer. And we've learned he's all those things, plus, right? And so he's traveling 550 miles, as Sean shared with us last week. That's like walking from Cleveland to Spring Hill, Tennessee. All right, so that's going to take you, if you stop and take Sundays off, um, you'll get there by October 1st. <laughs> so this is not just a little jaunt, okay? And he's on this way, and we heard last week he had an incredible encounter with the living God where the Lord spoke to him through this vision. Now, I've never received a vision like this, have you? A vision of a ladder that reminded him that God will be with him because the older shall serve the younger. And God reminds him that I will be with you. And it's not you who have to climb up to me. I will climb down to you. And what does Jacob do? It's really quite humorous. If God will be with me, then I'll live for you, Lord, and I'll even give you 10% of my income. He doesn't get it. He's got a personal relationship with God right now, but it's lacking, isn't it? He's still looking for the self-affirmation, self-actualization. He's looking for hope. And there's a hole in his life. There's a hole in his heart. It's just not there yet. And what we discover, and I encourage you to turn with me in this text, Genesis chapter 29, is he enters himself into a love struggle He's got the desire for a true hope. We see the desire for true hope, the disillusion of true hope, and where true hope will be found in his life. All right? The desire for a true hope, the disillusion of a true hope, and where true hope is found. And so, looking right away, we look for the, his desire for true hope. And for Jacob... His hope is for true love. All right. Verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages shall be. And it doesn't take long to find out what he really wants, what his wages are. All right. Verse 17. 
Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. My friends, he has fallen head over heels in love for Rachel. Now, the Hebrew is very distinct. Form and appearance. She's just not lovely in the face. She is Rita Hayworth, Marilyn Monroe, Raquel Welch, Cheryl Ladd, and Scarlett Johansson all wrapped up into one. Are you with me? She's stunning. Stunningly beautiful. And so the Bible teaches us that we're not to look on the outside. We're to look on the inside because that's where God looks. But when the scripture mentions somebody's appearance, you need to pay attention because she is gorgeous. And Leah is described as eyes being weak. I love Leah. Leah's the girl in the class that everybody looks through. She's talking, but nobody's listening. Because she's just homely, not very attractive. But there's more to her than meets the eye, we discover. And so Jacob quickly lets Uncle Laban know that what he wants, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel, verse 18. Now, if you know Middle Eastern culture, you know they love to bargain, right? Most of us don't, you know. Bob Middlemiss and Rob Zataki, that's a hobby for those guys. But for the rest of us, we hate going to car dealerships, right? Because you got to haggle. But in the Middle East... They love it. They just think it's great. And he says, I'll work seven years for you. Now, do the math. In ancient culture, a, day, a day's wages, a week's wages were a shekel and a half. And a bride price was about 30 shekels. So that means you earn 72 shekels a year. That means, what, a third of your year's salary is what your bride price is? And he's willing to pay for seven years? Uncle Laban goes, deal! <laughs> no problem. You know, he's not negotiating. It's an exorbitant sum of money, and it's very indiscreet for an ancient Jew to act this way, and it gets even worse. He works for seven years, but it seemed to him a few days because of the love he had for her. Just a few days, no big deal. And he gets to that day, and he comes up and he poetically says, Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is complete. Jewish scholars for years have tried to soften this. It cannot be done. He's saying, Give me my wife so I can have sex with her. It's that raw. Okay? And what this really means is his hope for true love. That's his hope is that he, he can think my life is complete, my life will be whole, my life will be right, it'll be perfect if I just have this woman. Now, isn't it nice that people don't do that anymore? You know they do, right? People do it all the time. People deal with relationships in this way. People deal with careers this way. If I just get this job, everything will be great. 
if I just get to retirement, everything will be phenomenal when I hit my golden years. You know, my friend Carl Neely would always say, I've reached my golden years, but I don't know where the gold is. You know? We do it in the way we parent our kids. If I just had these children and I raise them the right way, the American way, everything will be great. I'll have nice, successful designer kids. Right? See, it's not just Jacob, it's us. So how do we fill the hole? Where's our hope, our real hope? It might be in relationships. In America, we see this exhibited in the hookup culture. That's having sex with a hot person who there's without any commitments whatsoever. It's just an act. And so many young people are buying it, and I'm here to tell you, all young people, it's a lie. It won't satisfy you. It's a hole that you're trying to fill. So that's where Jacob is looking for his hope in finding true love. And what we discover real quickly is that there's great disillusionment in it. And we see the disillusionment of the true love or his hope by Laban's plan and by looking at the life of Leah. Well, let's look at Laban's plan here. Uncle Laban. He's not a real likable guy, is he? You know? Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? If you remember, we've spoken about this a few times, where ancient Jewish weddings were done in this way. It started with a procession from the bride's house, and she was completely veiled. And the whole town would walk with the bride to the groom's house, where the wedding would be take place. And then there would commence a feast. And oh, it was a feast. The feast would go on for a week. But the first day was an exceptional feast. And you can just imagine all the wonderful food, all the wonderful wine. And so they get to the nighttime where there's no lights, whatever you. She's still veiled. And he's had one too many. And so they consummate their relationship, and he wakes up in the morning. It's not Rachel. It's Leah. So he comes to her and says, comes to Uncle Laban and says, Why have you deceived me? Which is the exact same word in Hebrew that Isaac said of him when he deceived his father. Why did you deceive me? And, and Laban, being, you know, a used car salesman, said, ah, it's not our custom to give away the younger girls. So we've got to give you the younger girls because there's no way I could get rid of her unless I gave her away to you first. I had to figure out some scheme, so a scheme has been rigged out upon the schemer. And you can imagine the conversation between Leah 
and Jacob, can't you? There's an ancient Jewish rabbi who tried to play the conversation the next day and said, as Jacob says to her, you know, I called out Rachel in the dark and you answered me. Why did you do that to me? And Leah responds, yeah, Isaac called out Esau in the dark. Why did you do that to him? The schemer's been schemed, hasn't he? So that's the plot. And yet we see the disillusionment with the person of Leah. And we see her hopes in the next few, few texts. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon me, my affliction, from now my husband will love me. She starts to have children. We see her in this test passage today. She has four male children. And every single one of the names gives us a glimpse of what her hope is. Her first son, she names Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Reuben means to see. That now, he won't look through me, he'll look at me. Now that I've borne him a son. Not so much. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Simeon means hear me, listen to me. Now, that I have a second son, he'll listen to me. I won't talk and be white noise in his life. Didn't happen. She conceived again and bore a son. And said, Simeon and then Levi, my husband will be attached to me. What do you think Levi means? Attached. We'll grow close to one another. What is she doing when she's doing this? She's identifying her hopes. She's identifying her identity solely in a relationship with her husband. She's doing the same thing in a different way that Jacob been doing to Rachel. Filling the holes with things. And we do this too. Right? We do it with the careers. We do it with our retirement. We do it with our family raising, especially the way we're doing our families now. You know, there's a difference, Ray Ortland says, between a family of Christians and a Christian family. He says, in a family made up of Christians, the dad is a Christian, the mom is a Christian, and the kids are Christians, but as a family, they're hard to read. They're nice people, but in their home, there's no prayer except saying grace at meals. There's no praise of Christ no enjoyment of Christ, no conversation about Christ, no mission for Christ. They've not made the cause of Jesus their own cause because that family hasn't defined any cause for themselves. They haven't settled really on anything. Their vibe is whatever. So they're dominated by their smartphones, their sports practices, and an English flow of preoccupations, grievances, and sheer boredom. They love Jesus what they serve is a vague blob of an idol named whatever. 
That idol doesn't feel adversarial because it doesn't feel like much of anything. Whatever goes with the flow, but it neutralizes any family as a force for Jesus. If you haven't led your family to decide to follow Jesus as a lifestyle, why do you think you have a Christian family? By contrast, a Christian family led by the head of the house takes this stand. We will serve the Lord. We, serve, we have served other gods, but there's no more of that. Now we want Jesus. No matter what others choose, we will serve the Lord. That's a Christian family. They aren't perfect, but they know what they want, and they go get it. My friends, the disillusionment that we buy into are profound in our culture. And it's a beautiful thing that we have this story because it actually shows us where we can find true hope. But before I go there, I know that there's some of you who are looking at this and saying, you know, this is, these are just primitive people. I hate, this is why I can't stand the Bible. So I don't read it, you know, polygamy, slavery, bride purchase. It all leads to train wreck. And guess what? The author of Genesis would say, absolutely. Do you ever see where the author says that this is a good idea? To have two wives? Do you ever see ever in the scripture where having slaves is a good idea? Do you ever see where the purchase of a bride and the cultural things that they're working out here are a great idea? No. So it's important for us to learn how to read. You know, and there's so many people who've said, well, you know, we're modern people. We, we've gotten past the, this way of treating women. Uh, please allow me to be a little sarcastic here. Aren't you glad here in modern America we reached the day where nobody is judged on appearances? You see, it's just as relevant today as it was then. And so there, my friends, there are no perfect people. Because in this passage, there's no perfect people. What we have is a God who has spoken to Jacob and desires to be known and to be served and to be loved and to be sued, not to be won over. And so the disillusionment of their hope here is for the true love in others. And what we discover in the last verse, verse 35, is where true hope is truly found. She conceived again and bore a son, and this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, then she ceased bearing. <laughs> this time I will praise the Lord. I'm not going to look to my husband. I'm not going to look to anybody but the Lord. And guess what Judah's name means? Praise the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. She gets it. Jacob doesn't quite get it yet, but he will. But the reality is, this is how where true hope is found. It's because Judah is the one through whom Jesus will come. It's not through Levi. It's not through Simeon. It's not through Rachel's children. It's through Judah. That the one we heard read in the gospel, 
who came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many will come through Leah. It's important that we understand this principle because this is how God sets it up. That it's through the weak, the homely, the not perfect people. We have to be able to say that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved by grace because God comes to the rejected ones, through the weak ones. And it's through Leah becomes the mother of Jesus. And that's how the gospel works in each and every one of our lives, dear friends. The gospel saves people who are not strong. The gospel saves people who are weak, who admit they're sinners. So therefore, it's important that we understand this truth. This is where our hope is to be found. Not in our career, not in our 2.5 perfect kids, not in our perfect 401k, not in the fact that I just can't lose that last 15 pounds and have the six-pack abs. This is how salvation's going to work. So if your life is lacking such hope of true love, the designer life, the perfect kids, the bank account. God's not at the top of the ladder looking down at you say, get up here. <laughs> He's looking down at the top of the stairs and saying, I'm coming to you because you can't do it. Because this is what happens. Every single morning, you're going to wake up and guess what you're going to find? Leah. <laughs> no matter it's your career, the career will disappoint you. No matter it's your retirement, even your retirement will disappoint you. Something's coming along and not going to be as you wish it would be. Lewis says it this way. Most people, if they really had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they, what they actually do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise, do they? The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, our longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learning careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which fades away in reality. The wife may be a good wife. And the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent. And chemistry may be a very interesting job. But the thing we thought was going to be in the center of it always has evaded us. If you live for any length of time, you know that's true. Amen. And so my friends, my question for each and every one of us is, what are we looking for? What hope are we really looking for that God desires to be in? In each and every one of our lives. We all have them, right? Let's lay them at the cross this morning. Because people with a hole in their life give themselves to a hope. Have you been giving to yourself to a hope lately that doesn't do it? Let's recommit. Let's give ourselves to the one through whom came through Judah, through Leah. Because in Christ, 
We're Rachel. <laughs> We're beautiful, each and every one of us, because man looks on the inside, or God looks on the inside, not the outside. And that's where our hope is truly found. Let's pray, dear friends. Lord, we thank you for this word which reminds us that in you we're beautiful. And Lord, I pray you would help us to apply this scripture in the various ways that this text can be applied across our congregation. It's difficult with all the varied applications to bring it home to the varied situation represented by all the people here gathered this morning. But I would ask that your Holy Spirit would do that for each and every one of us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill each and every one of us as your word is brought forth this morning. As we look at this familiar story to some and not so familiar to others, Lord, I just ask that you would speak powerfully to each and every one of us. You would take our thoughts and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned at the welcome, we're in this journey through Jacob's, uh, the Jacob the Patriarch's life and learning along the way the train wreck that he's created. And it's going to take a while till we see the train wreck become beautiful, I've got to be honest with you. But it's really interesting as we look at this because what he's done is he has a personal relationship with God. Coming off of last week's lesson where he had this tremendous vision. I don't know about you, I haven't had a vision like that before in my life. It's, it's an amazing vision that he receives, as Sean beautifully exposited for us, that it's a vision that God has expressed to Jacob, I will be with you. Even as messed up as you are, I will be with you. And what does Jacob do? He sets up his altar and says, if you will be with me, and says, as a matter of fact, if you will do this, Lord, I'll even give you 10% of my income. You know? And so he's got this personal relationship with God, but he's got some missing parts, doesn't he? He's still looking for blessing. He's still looking for personal affirmation. He's still looking for peace, which he lacks from the relationship that he had with his dad. It all stems back to there, right? And so what we see in this text today is a hope that he's expressing. We all have hopes. We all have dreams. We all have aspirations. And the hope that Jacob finds, which he's looking for, is true love, isn't always what it's supposed to be, right? So I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles here, because we're going to discover three great truths for each and every one of us. Number one, we're going to look at the desire for true hope, we're going to look at the disillusionment of true hope. And then we're going to see where true hope really lies. Okay? The desire for true hope, the delusion of true hope, and where true hope will really reside. First, so let's look at first. It doesn't take long to discover it. Jacob has traveled 550 miles on 
foot, okay? By himself in the middle of nowhere going from Beersheba to Padden Aram. Ladies and gentlemen, that's like hiking from Cleveland to Spring Hill, Tennessee. If you started today and you took Sundays as a vacation day, you'd get there by October 1st. So this has been quite the journey, okay? We, we, we moderns read this like just one day after the next. Oh, no. This is an eventual journey. So he gets there to Uncle Laban's house. He's glad, and he notices along the way this absolutely stunning daughter of Laban's named Rachel. And so it doesn't take long till we see it. Verse 15, Laban said, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. We are told that God looks on the inside while we look on the outside. That's the way we humans naturally are bent. We notice how people look, right? He's a good-looking guy, good-looking girl. We notice, okay? God says, don't look on the outside, look on the inside. That might be true. But when the Bible speaks of someone being beautiful in form and appearance, what the Hebrew Scriptures are saying, not only is she beautiful from her face, she is stunningly drop-dead, Rita Hayworth, you know, Marilyn Monroe, Raquel Welch, Cheryl Ladd, Scarlett Johansson, beautiful. Okay? She's gorgeous. You know, just take every generation, put them all together. That's Rachel. Okay? And so he just is falling in love, and that's where his hope is. And so he was glad to all of a sudden, he goes, well, what should I pay you? Let's, let's strike a deal together. And he says, then I will, um, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. I will serve you seven years. Now, if you look at ancient archaeological evidence, the typical bride price was about 30 to 40 shekels for the bride. You earn one and a half shekels a week, so you do the math on that, it's 72 shekels a year. He's just agreed to work for seven years, knowing that it's 30 shekels for a bride. I was going to give her to you for 30. You're going to give me seven years of work? Deal! You see, what Jacob has just offered Laban is an exorbitant sum. He's not negotiating. He wants her so badly, he's willing to do anything. He's going to work for seven years. He, he offered that. And notice, Laban doesn't say yes. He says, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. <laughs> this is absolutely incredible. And so therefore, the next thing you see is, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So seven years go by, and then he comes, and this is, this is not a very indiscreet way to express this. All right? Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Hebrew scholars have tried to soften this for years, and there's no softening. You can't. He's very direct. Give me my wife so I can have sex with her. And what Jacob is truly saying when you think about this, my hope, the love I've been looking for is going to be found here. 
and this absolutely beautiful woman I love, if I can just have her, everything will be okay in my life. Everything will be peace. All will be well. Right? And, and this happens today. It doesn't happen only in relationships. It happens in careers. If I just get this position, everything will be great. We do this with the way we raise our kids. If I do X, Y, and Z and have my kids in D, E, and F all the way down to Z, then my kids will be successful and then I'll be a good parent. Or, man, I can't just wait to get to my retirement years and enjoy those golden years. You know, you ask any retiree, where's the gold? Right? So how do we do this? That's where the hope is. That's the, but the, it ends us with a question, doesn't it? He's going to get a wife. This is going to happen. But then we quickly see the disillusionment of the hope that he has for true love. And we see it in Laban's plan, and we see it in the way Leah is treated. So, Jacob says, Give me my wife that I may go into her, verse 21, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? It's interesting that in the Hebrew, the word deceived that he uses for Laban is the exact word Isaac used to describe Jacob and how Jacob deceived him. Exact same word. Why is it that you can deceive me? There was a medieval rabbi playing the conversation the next morning between Leah and Jacob. As he says, I cried out, Rachel, in the dark. How could you do this to me? And she said, yeah. And Esau cried, and Isaac cried out, Esau, in the dark. Why did you do that to him? See, the schemer has been schemed, hasn't he? So that's the plan. Now, put yourself in Laban's shoes. Leah's homely. Leah's an ugly duckling. When you talk to Leah, people, she, her whole life, she's been that girl that when, people, when she talks, people just look right past her. And Laban's probably thinking, well, I can't get rid of her unless I give her to you, so here, take her. That's the way he's treating her. It's not fair, it's not right, but that's what he's doing. And you say, how in the world did this happen? Well, you've got to remember how the way ancient Jewish weddings occurred. The bride was completely veiled all day because she was to be a gift. They were to be a gift to one another, unwrapped on the night that their, their marriage was consummated. So she wore this veil all day. And Jewish weddings lasted for a week and the first day, you left the bride's house, and she's all veiled, go to the groom's house where the wedding was happening, and let the party begin. And there was feasting, and there was drinking, and he probably had one too many, if not 12 too many. And that night when they consummated their wedding, there was no lights, there was no lamps, there was no mood lights, or candles, or tea lights, or nothing. 
All right? It was just two people in the dark. So he wakes up in the morning and he sees, you aren't Rachel. And so we learn about Leah, don't we? Leah, who we find her hope is in finding true love in a husband. And that's where her only hope is. Because as she begins to have children, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. The name Reuben means to see. No longer will my husband look through me. My husband will see me for who I am. So she named her son Reuben. Next comes Simeon. She again bore a son, verse 33, and because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And his name shall be called Simeon, which means hear me. That because I've brought this son now, not only will he see me, he'll listen to me. I'll be a confident, I'll be his soulmate together. And that doesn't happen. But yet, again, she conceives, verse 34, and bore a son. Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi, which means attached. That we'll be together no matter what. Because I've given these three sons to him. He'll hear me. He'll see me. What is she doing? She's finding her hope in this relationship with Jacob, who we've just heard said he loved Rachel. So she keeps bringing these sons. And we do the same, don't we? We find our hope in things that just don't satisfy. We find our hope in, in things in our finances, in our parenting, and then we pour it into our kids and we just self-actualize through our children. We do it in hoping for retirement. My dad says, I'm going to play tennis in my retirement. He went on to compete in the Senior Olympics, you know, he got a silver medal. There were two people who competed in the whole state of Georgia. Hey, I got a silver. Come on, Dad. I'm glad he was busy. But it was so far short. It didn't satisfy him. I could just tell. We all do the same. And so... Because the reality is, no matter what happens in the morning, we wake up and we discover disappointment. There will be a Leah situation, no matter what happens. And we find our hope outside of God and Christ. Lewis said, most people, if they really had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do, what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. 
I am not only speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers, I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in reality. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but it became the very thing that at the center of it always has evaded us. Now, before any of you say, well, you know, this is why I just, I can't read the Bible. This whole bride price, the way they treat women, uh, polygamy, um, slavery, it's just all, I just can't read it. It doesn't make sense to me. All it does is make a train wreck of people's lives. I want you to notice, if you read the entire book of Genesis, do you ever see the author approving of such behavior? The answer is no, you won't. Because this wasn't God's plan from the beginning. But he always allows God's people to do what they want to do. <laughs> he gives us a will. And so, we got to, first we have to learn how to read and make sure that we understand that never, ever, does the Bible approve of women being treated like this? And I, I'm sure some of you go, well, this is so ancient. This, is, this doesn't relate to our lives at all. We certainly have gotten beyond this in the way we treat women, right? Can I be a little snarky? All right. Isn't it great that we live in a modern America and we're so liberated that we don't live in a, in, in a culture where anybody is judged by their appearance? You see, it's very relevant, what's going on here. And you feel for Leah, definitely. Because the reality, my friends, is when we read these texts, these people aren't our role models. <laughs> right? They're, because there's no perfect people in God's kingdom. What we have is a God who is at the top of the ladder, like we saw last week, coming down to be with us and serve us. And be there, because all throughout the scriptures, God's people are those people who are so messed up, who don't seek him. They don't deserve him. They continually resist him, even after they've been saved by him. So the disillusionment is that no matter what your true hope is, if it's outside of Christ, it will never, ever satisfy. Be it Relational, the search for the one true love, be it career, if I just get this position, everything will be great. Even if you get kids, and you raise them up to be perfect designer kids, 2.5, great. Or even if you build up your 401k, can you retire for 50 years? You're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to realize this situation is a Leah and it won't satisfy you. So how do we find the true hope? Well, here's a secret and I bet you, when the first time I read it, I just read right past it. But it's fascinating. Verse 35. Here's our girl Leah. You gotta love her. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. 
she came to the place where she realized, you know, my husband still doesn't see me. He doesn't listen to me. We're not that close and attached. He still loves my sister. This time, I'm just going to praise the Lord because he's given me a son. And this is the son whom the Messiah will come through. Not Reuben, not, not Simeon, not Levi, but Judah. Because God looks down at people who are so weak, so in need of a Savior, so in need of help, and he rescues them. And I think that's the message for each and every one of us this morning. That if you're a sophisticated suburbanite, and you can't say, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved by grace, and you too are proud for this incredible salvation that comes into the world through Leah and her boy, because God has rescued us through Leah, not through Rachel. Because the gospel saves people who don't deserve it, who aren't strong, who aren't necessarily attractive inside or out. The gospel saves people who admit they're sinners and are saved by that grace of Jesus upon the cross. So, you got to look at that and recognize that it's the girl who was not loved and the schemer who, even at this time, it's going to be some years now, but Jacob's going to become a decent guy. He's getting there. Slow, but he's getting there. But it's through this humbled character and the girl who is not loved are the ones who bring salvation to the world because that's how the gospel works. Can you handle that? He looked at the one without the designer life, without the designer kids, without the perfect kids, without the perfect retirement fund, without the perfect look, and said, this is how my salvation is going to work. This is how my son is going to look. You're the mom of my son. So if your life is lacking true love, it's lacking the designer perfect clothes, lacking the perfect kids, you just can't slow down off the mouse wheel, lacking the perfect bank account, the 401k, you're going to work till you're 90 flipping burgers. You can't shed those last 15 pounds for those six-pack abs. Uh, don't you see God is at the top of the steps looking down and said, I am with you. You don't have to be smart and attractive and just get up to the top. But Jesus is the one who comes down to us. Because Jesus came, as we heard in the gospel, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the one, Isaiah 52, we could hardly look upon. And was absolutely ugly because Jesus became weak and ugly. So when we believed in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. Because you realize, right, that in Christ, you're beautiful. You look like a Rachel. You will always look like a Rachel to him. No matter what you look on the outside. 
And the whole point of this text is, my friends, let us receive and recommit our lives to this Jesus from the line of Judah. And let those things pass into our lives and we can take our lives back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us understand the good news that's in this text and apply it in the variety of ways that this text can be applied to the variety of lives represented here this morning. It's difficult for us because it has so many applications. There's so many varied situations represented by this church this morning. I ask your Holy Spirit to do that for each and every one of us in a variety of ways that you can do. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.